Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast. If you are under 18 years of age, stop the podcast now. This is episode 207 of our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the kinky cast. We welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. Today, we present Molly Devon, author of Screw the Roses, Send Me the Thorns. Here's your host, The Beast. Thank you, Max. And we're here for another edition of the Kinky Cast, and we're way up in the north reaches, in the cold burr places, with Molly Devon. Hello, Molly. Hi. Some of our listeners of a certain age will remember your book. I feel like it's a standard read, uh, even in this internet age. Molly's the author of Screw the Roses, Send Me the Thorns, which I happen to believe is the book that put us on the map as a lifestyle. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. There were other books before my book, and there were other books after. And also, I need to say that I wrote it with Philip Miller. This was not a solo deal. Yes, uh, and Mr. Miller passed on a few years ago, was that? Yes. yes. He, he died about a year after the book was published. Oh, wow. Now, the book, though, definitely was a popular read at that point and still had some great information in it. Um, today that I think many people should be reading <laughs> instead of, instead of Google. What motivates you to write it? Honestly, it started off as a pamphlet and became a book. Philip and I were involved in, um, a, uh, BBS back in the day, uh, called English Palace. And we were getting ready for, um, English Palace weekend and we thought we were going to write an introductory thing. And then we started writing and it just very clearly became obvious that we didn't have a pamphlet. We had a book and we kept working on it for like another, it took us about two years to write it. BBS for our listeners that are, um, not of a certain age is, uh, is a bulletin board system. They were early computer chat rooms. Correct. And this is really where the community, as we know it, I think, found its roots and its connectivity was through what the early days of the internet when we had this, uh, people could reconnect over long, long distances and, and then the safety of their living rooms or bedrooms or wherever. Sure. But because we were in the New York area, we actually had access to kink that was around before the Internet. Oh, the Ewan Spiegel Society. Uh, yeah, the Oil and Spiegel Society. People call it TESS. But there were also like clubs like the Vault and Hellfire and so on where you could go and play publicly. Oh, what was it like in those days? Uh, uh, I, I was a middle America person and, uh, New York was so far away that, that I never got there. So what was the community like in, in, in those, uh, early days? It's interesting. It, it varied from locality to locality. Um, in some areas, the scene ro- wor- worked around gay bars. Okay. Like the Eagle and so on. Um, in New York, there were several venues that were open to 
heterosexual couples or people as well as gay people. But like the biggest difference I would say is that the community was small enough so that you could get references on people before you played with them. So vetting was much, much easier. Vetting was easier. But what about the, the new pe- person coming in? What, what was it like for them? They were actually, people were incredibly protective when I came in. I don't know. It made it a lot less worrisome, I guess. I don't have to describe it. Um, people were welcoming, of course, because you always welcome fresh meat. But people were also. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that's a bit of truth there. Yes, it's still true today. I would guess that the biggest of people who were experiencing it live in the real world as opposed to the internet, there was a lot of sort of common sense, you know? Common sense? I mean, that is a, that, what? Excuse me? I mean, like, you didn't have to say safe, sane, and consensual because everybody, you know, um, sort of kind of knew it, even though the phrase hadn't been coined yet, you know? And people were protective, not just because they didn't want someone to get hurt, but because it reflected on the community as a whole. If something negative happened, it wasn't good for anybody. Yeah, scandals uh, would would have quickly closed down a venue. Correct. And matter of fact, all the public play places had bouncers. And if people didn't behave properly, like behaved in a non-consensual manner, they were escorted out. Not to come back. I'm not sure if they kept a list or what, but I just always thought that, like, the vault, though, was pretty dirty, was probably one of the safest places in the world to play. There was a bit of a seedy element going on in those days, <laughs> wasn't there? Yes. As a matter of fact, the, the places, the old vault used to, so there was a lot of dripping from the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> Bad pipes or whatever, I don't know. We had a club here in the Mid-South uh, in, in Memphis that was in a old cotton warehouse from the Civil War. And the venue was just incredible. Brick and heavy timbers. and But yeah, it was damp and dank and, and all sorts of, of uh, interesting corners going on in that club. But it has so much character going on for sure. Where Where is this? This was in Memphis, Impact. Okay. And that come along in the uh, mid-90s. You know, there's some surprising places where I went to early parties 25 years ago. Places like Clarksville. Ah, yes, Mistress K. Yes. Yes. You know her? Yeah, she, she's still kicking. She has uh, shifted her focus the last couple of years. She's very much into her 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 pets now. She's uh, uh her four-legged pets. She's showing dogs now and having a great time in her retirement. That's great. But it always surprises me. You come on a place like New York and you kind of expect, or you go to a place like San Francisco and you expect there to be a certain amount going on. And it always kind of surprises you when you go to some place that you think is kind of out of the way and there's a lot going on. Well, Nancy Ava Miller did a lot to spread those communities far and wide. Houston, Atlanta, D.C. Um, she hit so many places with her uh, startups. Well, I know of her from early in the D.C. area. She is the one that helped uh, Mistress K seed the Clarksville group. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and she also helped Lady D seed the uh, group out of Orlando. 
some of these things I may know and may have forgotten already. <laughs> <laughs> I've reached this age where, you know, some of the details get lost a little bit. You had a pamphlet that wasn't a pamphlet anymore. Yes, it was a book in progress. Publication of that book. Uh, as you said, there were some books out there. Uh, Wise Men was writing over on the uh, left coast. and. Yes. Uh, and what were some of the other authors in those days? Do you remember any names? Well, well, Jay was writing for Greenery Press, and so was Janet, who was also running Greenery Press. You know, Janet? Yeah. Okay. We've interviewed a Janet for a couple times here. And Dossie Easton, a lot of Leathermen, um, like Joseph Bean and... Bean and Rinella and... Of course, uh, I've one, One's on tip of my tongue, uh, Baldwin. Right, Guy Baldwin. And um, I've, I've met all of these people. You know, sort of, you get, go to a thing and there's the usual suspects run into each other. <laughs> you are part of a rather a, a elite fraternity there. I don't know about that. There's, um, But some of the people are still writing, you know. Okay, let's also uh, came right out, out after us is Warren's book. Oh yes, uh, John John Warren, and he was over in Knoxville here in Tennessee uh, for a time when that came yeah. out. So, and of course, then there's the, the fiction writers like Laura Antonu and um, and Vi Johnson, who sort of straddles the fiction nonfiction. And and Vi is still going strong. And Vi, of course, if she's going strong, she'll go forever. <laughs> <laughs> she will, won't, won't she? Yes. And I, for a while there, when, when my publishing company was doing well, I was publishing Laura and Vi, books by then. Oh, wow. Yeah. We talked to Laura on the podcast a couple of years ago and we run into her at events because she's still uh, out there writing. Yes. Because she's a very talented writer. How did you go about getting this book published? I mean, it was kind of an interesting title. We self-published. Oh, wow. Bold. Well, here's the thing: is we put together the book and we send it out like 50 copies to various publishing companies and also um, agents, and we got back actually really positive responses. But they said we like your book, but we have no idea how to market it, <laughs> so we don't know what to do with it, you know. And so Philip and I said, you know, we could publish it, we could do this, and so we started Mystic Rose Books. Wow, you were trailblazers here. So how did you get into the stores? But this was before Amazon. Amazon was easy back in those days because they were desperate. They were like a startup organization, right. basically. And they were eager to get new books. And they were very easy to deal with. So Amazon was no problem. And as far as getting into local outlets, basically footwork. Honestly, God, we went to a zillion kink stores places like Tower Records and stuff, and just gave out free books like crazy. You know, it's it's just shoe leather. <laughs> <laughs> well, the days of the of the brick-and-mortar store was still uh, alive and well, but the reaching each one of those venues was, was much harder. You had a few large companies, but Tower was one of the larger ones at that point. Tower was good for us. Books a Million was good for us. Um, and then we got picked up by Ingram, who distributed to a zillion bookstores across the country. And then it wasn't, you know, that was pretty much it. Then it started taking off. We've sold 
now this is an estimate, but somewhere over 170,000 copies. Wow. Impressive numbers for what is considered a niche book to a fringe audience. Small niche at that. Yes. Well, a small at that time, it's a much larger niche now. Yeah. It's good because um, this was my living for a number of years. You're on the road plugging the book and speaking at conferences. What was it like on the road? We didn't have a lot of large conferences that we have today. There were a lot of conferences back then. I mean, every week, just about, there was a conference somewhere. I was going to about one conference a month, I think. I had small children to take care of, so I was trying to balance that. So motherhood has as well as kinkhood. Yes. As a matter of fact, a year after Philip died, my husband died. I was not married to Philip. I am sorry. That was a rough a rough couple of years there. Yeah, that was, but, but I needed to sell then. I really needed to sell books for a living. And I would shoot up to a thing for the weekend and be home by Sunday night. The road warrior. Yes. <laughs> and the conferences weren't that different than they are now. I mean, they were sort of, it's actually, honestly, the, the format for the King Conference is not very much different than the format for the sci-fi c- conferences. In, in our, our, our area, there's considerable uh, overlap between the two today. There was overlap back then. I mean, one of the first places that you could go and, and dress kinky was someplace like Arisha. And there still is this, this cross between um, what they call cosplay and kink. Well, I think that uh, there is a whole whole side of cosplay that is very kink-orientated. Yes. There is definitely non-kink cosplay, but I think there's definitely a, a segment of the cosplay community where kink is the, is the underpinning of their characters. I agree. What brought you to kink to begin with? You just didn't decide to write a book. You was on the BBS, and what brought you to kink in the first place? I always had a kinky side. Most of us who are really into this always had a kinky side. And I was a child of the 60s, so I, I didn't have a lot of inhibitions to begin with. But really got me involved to begin with, honestly, was Mensa. <laughs> okay. That is a route I don't hear much often. No, but I went to, like, I went to a regional gathering and I was involved with I guess you'd call it a flirtation with somebody who was involved with Mensa, who was heavily involved with kink, who's also a sysop from kink-related BBSs back before chat rooms, back in the day of Phytonet. Ah, dial-up where you dial straight into your board. Right. And so he kind of introduced me a little bit into the scene. And you already must have had the, the, the gene going on, though. Well, I listen, I played a, a lot of these games with my husband when we were dating back in the 1970s, so, you know. <laughs> the gaming community is a whole nother, nother source of our for our community. Sure. You were playing games, but I don't think you're meaning the gaming community. You're meaning the, the, uh, the kinky bedroom games. Yes, I think that's exactly what I mean. <laughs> Though I actually was sort of involved with a little bit of the sort of online DS-type games. And, and there's not a lot, honestly, psychologically, between pretending to be a hobbit and pretending to be a slave. There's, you know, <laughs> there's a relationship there. 
it is, uh, and, and also it, it's, it's a chance for you to take on a persona and, and explore aspects of your personality that may not be compatible with your day to day life at a given time. Correct. And I, I don't mean to say that being a slave is pretend. That was actually, uh, I framed that badly because it's, it's more of an exploration of an aspect of your personality. But the, but the reality still of being a slave in your day to day isn't always a, um, something that can occur. You got to interact with the public and you have children and you have a lot of other duties that, that sometimes can be conflicting with that role. So, uh, a, a time out of space and out of time to explore that can be quite, uh, freeing and enlightening. Right. In the bedroom, where did you get your your material from, your uh, scripts, so to speak? Well, the first inspiration when I was like, well, so we're talking about the 60s, um, we're probably honestly reading Playboy, gave me some ideas. Also, I used to babysit. And when I, where, one of the places where I babysit, way up on the top shelf in the family room were a bunch of magazines that this guy collected you know, the ones that would have, like, the Nazis torturing this damsel with a ah, yes. blouse and all that. Yes. And I used to read those, and they were, like, incredibly hot to me, you know? They were borderline porn. Right. Well, like, yeah, they're kind of porn, but what we would call soft porn by today's standards, probably. Not well-written, but nonetheless hot. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. And they definitely were the forerunners of the... Um, some of the literature that we have since come in, that's much higher, higher grade. I mean, the marketplace right. is very, very well done. So if you are having babysitters come to your house to watch your kids, you really need to hide this stuff better. <laughs> I think parents are kind of oblivious and trusting of things. and uh, But people are people. We all have our kinky side. Oh, I know. But if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. Yep, I mean, there would have been another trigger. Sure. Uh, when I taught, uh, social workers, uh, used to do a seminar for social workers in a local college, trying to get them a more open-minded when they're going out in the field and, and dealing with family situations and so forth when they ran across kinky people. Cause, you know, we don't want a knee, a knee-jerk reaction. We would start with raising your hands if you use a blindfold in your sex play. Raise your hand if you, uh, every now and then use a tide for bondage. And before you know it, uh, with just a few of these, we have every hand in the, in the room up. And I said, you all are kinky. Yep. And they would look at each other and there were blushes come on and, and some people just weren't ready to process that re-reality. But, uh, the triggers are, are everywhere for us. I grew up in a family where, like, uh, my parents were pretty relaxed about sexuality. It was kind of an upper middle class Jewish family. And my father was, um, a key holder to Playboy Club key holder. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. That was the New York club. I don't know which club he went to or probably several because he traveled for work a lot, but, um, I think it has to do with having a subscription for so many years or something. I don't know the whole deal, but. But the point was, I didn't have a lot of inhibitions against kinkness to overcome. That makes it a little easier. That was a different time sexually. Sexuality was uh, opening up at that moment, and the boundaries were 
practically boundless at that moment in time in the 60s and uh, uh, in the mid-70s. Sure. And, like, we didn't think there was anything we could get that couldn't be cured with penicillin because AIDS had not entered our awareness yet. It was at least like, uh, 15 years in the in the future from the 70s. Yeah, that was an incredible time for exploration. Yes. You met your hubby, and you both decided that you had some kink interest. And, yeah. <laughs> and how did you find your first club, your first play party? My first play party, I found met some people on the BBS, and they invited me to party at their house. And that would have been on Long Island. Then we went very soon after that to the vault. Um, so the first real public play I did is that was at the vault. Now, was the vault a publicly known, or was that kind of, or was that kind of the community, the lifestyle's secret, uh, open secret place? No, it was an out and out club. In the meatpacking district in New York. Meatpacking. I, I, I kind of love that uh, that visual image. <laughs> well, it was. I mean, it was like it was the meatpacking club, and it's where you had the um, transgendered hookers on the street, and, and there were a number of clubs in that area. This is before the Disneyfication of New York. I can't remember the mayor's name, but uh, things change. Yep. And I don't know if it's always for the better. We drive some things under, underground and just make them more, more, uh, dangerous and, um, risky. I would agree with that. The public clubs were a real benefit for people to explore and to learn and to talk to people. I mean, there's always going to be some dangers involved. If you pick up a stranger, that's dangerous. But if you, develop a community and have a group that you hang out with, it becomes a lot less dangerous. And you have resources available that that you don't uh has a has a lone wolf out there. Right. And uh you know, we have uh we have a wide variety of play and your book um uh, talked about many of those plays and where did you get your material from for the book? about the different play topics. Uh, Robert Dante mentioned that he did the whips section. Yes. Well, the other sections we wrote, that was the only section we had a guest writer for. So you were out there researching and gathering information to write the rest of the chapters. Correct. This uh, came from your circle of friends and, and your community there. Yes. Pretty much everything in that book was road tested. Uh, so you you have to have quality control, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and how much of it was 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 you as a guinea pig? I would guess that most of the things in the book we talked about, I have done. It was an interesting ride in those early early days. Then, sure, <laughs> and it hasn't stopped, has it? <laughs> well, it's gotten a lot less. I'm a grandma now. <laughs> Time waits for no man. Uh, what's in the future? Any thought about re-revising Through the Roses? I, I've been discussing with my daughter. Well, for one thing, the graphics is not of real high quality because the tools that we used to put it together back then were much more primitive. Okay. And so we've talked about maybe redoing it. That was the early days of self-publishing. The tools were somewhat limiting and now desktop publishing makes anything possible in that respect. 
Yes. But we would like, like we would reshoot a lot of the photographs and so on. And we're, you know, possibly doing color. I'm not sure we're going to go ahead and do it. We're just talking about it right now. Well, there's been, uh, there's been some, some shifts in the, in the way we, we do things since the original publication. Rope has taken on a much larger, larger role than in those early days. The term rigor was not around. No, it wasn't. Uh, Midori was doing her, her craft and artwork. Yep. Yeah. We did a, a how to, we have a rope dress of the Shibari style in the book back from there then. There's a lot more. Now, um, if I go ahead and redo it, I'm going to have to like um, do a little more travel and a little more research. Is that such a problem? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I mean, there are so many exciting, exciting venues doing interesting things around the country today. Yeah, but I don't think the basics, the basics don't seem to have really changed. You know, there's more littles and middles and furries and things like that. But the basic underlying drives and wants still seem very similar to me. Well, the psychological needs, I don't think, have changed at all. I think that's a big portion of what our book was about. Yes, it was uh, about the about the mindset. The book gave people permission to let these uh, fantasies that had been dwelling in their darkest corners come to the surface and be explored in the real world. And we're trying to make people understand that um, it's not bad, but it's you should do it in a responsible way so you don't actually harm anybody in the process. That is where we get the term safe, sane, and consensual. Correct. Or wreck. Or prick. Or <laughs> Everybody wants to add terms because let's talk about that when I was studying sociology about how Coining terms makes you own the, the discipline. And what that is, if you're talking about from an academic stance, that's important to own the discipline. You gotta, you gotta add your contribution to it or you haven't existed. Correct. A revision might be in the future, might not, might not be in the future. What about for Molly otherwise? I have eight and a half grandchildren. One in the oven. Yeah, one in the oven, and I have a puppy. <laughs> we do get our pets of of one kind or the other eventually, don't we? Yes. This is like an actual puppy puppy. <laughs> you have passed the uh, the big six zero, and a lot of people will be saying sex is over by the by sixty. Kink is over by sixty, but but you're you are a a, a evidence that's not true. Not just past 60, I'm past Medicare age. <laughs> so. while, while we have a swell of youth to our community, which is great, but we also have our veterans. I'm in my 50s, and we I'm not planning on retiring my whips and my chains anytime soon. What is your perspective on the graying set? I don't know. It's an individual thing. I mean, it depends a lot on... Um, health and and energy level and so on. It also gets harder as you get older if you're not partnered. That's true in in all segments of our population for the uh for the older generation. It's just harder to meet people. Yeah. Uh, let me rephrase that. Harder to meet people on that personal intimate level. 
<laughs> yes. We have droves of acquaintances. Generally speaking, more of an observer these days than a participant, really. But you have so much to share as as as, as a knowledge, though. Yeah, I like to think so. Well, we need our sages. The youth spirit is important, but it can get out of control sometimes. I think the sages among us help bring some um, ration to that. That's hard. Um, are you still doing the circuit for the events i haven't been very much the last couple years because i spent okay um up until this year the last five years i've been um taking care of um, my oldest daughter's two children who were like well the youngest one just turned five watching two children of that age um 12 hours a day five days a week oh my I just really didn't have a lot of energy for anything. <laughs> we just had our uh, sixth grandchild um, this, uh, no, excuse me, our seventh grand grandchild Monday, Monday night. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's right. Seven. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you have to sit down and count on, on, on your fingers after, after a while. So I moved to Minnesota um, because the youngest one is now in kindergarten in Maryland. And um, here I have my daughter. I got my own house. And I am not involved in the everyday care of small children. So I may have a little more time and so on to get back into things. I don't know. Um, well, I hope to see you at an event in the future. Uh, we get out with a uh, pod podcast to a couple events in the in the region and every now and then we even get up up north okay well um you know, the old rule basically is i would go to events i would never people would pay my way because i would talk you know so i may be open to doing that again well i will put some <laughs> um fillers out to uh to to some of the events that that we attend and maybe they'll send you an invitation yeah we'll see Molly, it's been great talking talking with you. Nice talking to you. And I look forward to uh, your future endeavors, whatever they may be. Thank you. Listeners, we've been speaking with Molly Devon, author of Screw the Roses, Send Me the Thorns with Philip Miller. You have been listening to episode 207 of the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max. See you next week when we present Nookie Notes, a prolific writer on personal accountability.